Um, so just hold those images for just a second. I want to talk about religion for just a minute. So, you know, in our culture, at least the evangelical culture, if you say someone's religious, that's kind of a slam, isn't it? We don't hear that as a positive today. I'm using the term religion, though, not in that sense, but in the sense, uh, more the classic sense, that religion is, a, is an attempt to answer the big questions of life. So, why are we here? What's the purpose of life? What happens after life? on this planet is over. So see, thinking on the front end about religion <clears throat> as an attempt to answer the big questions of life and tell us what the big story is that our story, our life story, is invested in. Humans have, and I think you see this, I think you feel this, we have an innate desire to have some overarching way of seeing life. And, and then that gives context for our lives. And philosophers talk about this in the terms of a meta-narrative. An overarching story, storyline, plot, understanding of the universe, the cosmos, under which everything else has a place. Everything else fits under what that storyline is. And again, I think we're drawn to we want to make sense of our life, and that's the way we're using religion this morning. But to that point, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, one of those images, The Matrix, was a film trilogy from 1999 to 2003. Three movies in five years. They grossed, this is just at the box office, they grossed $1.6 billion. So over $500 million apiece these movies took in just at the box office. And if you haven't seen them, that's okay, but let me just briefly explain. There's a guy named Neo. That's the name he has for himself. And Neo's living his life Sort of normally he's a computer programmer. He's living his life. Life's going along just fine on one level. But on another, he's got this tickle in the back of his brain that something just seems off. And he's not sure what it is. And he's sort of driven by this compulsion to try and figure out what's behind the story that my life appears to be in. And what he comes to find out is he doesn't know what reality is. Because in fact, his whole life has been in a computer-generated software dreamscape and reality as he knows it is not reality at all and so the, the whole movie is promulgated on this thought that I'm going to find out what the story behind the story is I'm going to find out what the ultimate reality is and then that of course that infuses my life and the lives of everybody else around me with truth with truth now Lots of movies or books or stories, they're, they're interesting because they're, they're uh, adventures, right? Or <clears throat> they're exciting, they're comp great computer graphics, one thing and another. But generally what you'll find is the big stories that we love, they go to this theme of people looking for what's the big picture, what, are, what is everything going towards religious viewpoints, and how does my life make sense? The second image up here is from the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. So just another exa example. The Hobbit alone, the first simple book of the four books that have sold so many, The Hobbit alone has sold over 100 million copies. The Lord of the Rings on popular book surveys is always in the top books, not of the past year, not of the past 10 years, but of the past 100 years. Tolkien's books are always at the top of the popular surveys, best books of the last... 100 years. 
the two trilogies of Tolkien's, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Hobbit trilogy, six movies have taken in over $6 billion at the box office alone. And again, what's the storyline? What, what's the, what's the meta narrative in The Hobbit in these stories? So here again, you've got these sort of normal Joes, these halflings, these quiet guys living in the Shire. And even though they don't want to, they're drawn up into a story much bigger than anything they'd been aware of. And that their small corner of the world is tied to the larger world. And they realize that just like the path outside their doors connects to bigger paths and bigger roads, their lives are inextricably woven into the fabric of a story that is so much bigger than anything they thought about. They realize, they come to realize, they are players in a story that, that started long before they got on the scene, much bigger than their lives, and that it's this, these worlds at odds, good versus evil. And that's the big storyline under which their lives and their stories transpire. This meta-narrative. These stories and most of the stories that we love along these lines are driven by a search for an underlying cause and effect to life. The characters know or they come to realize that they are small actors in a narrative much older and longer than their own lives. Back to religion for just a minute. And actually you can see that pretty well. Uh... The pie chart you've got up there is from 2010. This is a Pew Research poll. This is worldwide. Back to the theme of religion. Worldwide. 16% of the world, just over a billion people, express no religious affiliation. And the reason I'm cueing on this is this. If religion attempts to answer the big storyline of life, why are we here, what's purpose, what represents meaning, to what end are we going... 16%, about one in six people, over a billion people in the world, said, I have no religious affiliation. To the degree that that represents not having a commitment or an understanding to a view of the world that makes sense of everything in their lives, that's significant. That's a huge deal, right? Religions trying to answer the big questions, and one in six, over a billion people in the world, say, We have no religious affiliation. We're not committed to a view, a big picture view that informs everything else we understand to be true in life. In the U.S., this is two years old, 2014. Those who hold, oh, and by the way, the 16%, that's the third largest religious, it's non-religious, but it's religious demographic Christians at about 32%, Muslims at about 23%. The next biggest piece of that pie is people that say we have no religious affiliation. That's pretty significant. In the U.S. from a 2014 survey, the fastest growing demographic in this country in religious terms are now called, they're referenced by the term, the nuns. N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. N-O-N-E-S which means they say we have no religious affiliation. And of them, about half say they're atheists. So in the United States today, about one in four people say, I don't subscribe to some version of reality under which my life or anybody else's life makes sense. In fact, for in, the, in the sense that someone says I'm an atheist, I, I claim no God at all, 
there's not even an option for an overarching storyline because there's no story. There's just molecules and matter bouncing around endlessly over time. There's not even the hint, much less the hope, of some overarching storyline that makes sense of our existence. And frankly, you know when you hear those surveys that say 80% of Americans are Christians? Do you hold those lightly? If you don't, we've got swamp for you in Florida, right? Um, Many people who will say, I affiliate, I subscribe to a particular religion, still live as if they don't, right? So even if somebody says, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I'm a Buddhist, yeah, I'm a Hindu, whatever, many of, many, for many, this is just nominalism. I say in name, yes, I subscribe to that, but I don't actually live that way. So we say today that we're living in a postmodern world in which ultimate truth is not a possibility to many people. And even for those who say, I believe in some form of religion, for many of them, they live as if there's no ultimate truth. There's no meta-narrative. There's no overarching story that makes sense of all of their lives. But we still identify with these stories. We still love the movies and we love the books in which the character is figuring out what's the story behind the story. What's the meta-narrative? What makes sense of my life and my existence? So we are starting a new series today that deals with ultimate reality, with cause and effect, with the meta-narrative that informs all of life. And it's a study, guys, 12 12 studies, 11 after today. This is an introduction only through the letter to the Ephesians. And the series title is Christ Overall. And as you'll see, and we'll flesh this out a little bit this morning, the theme of this book is that God is summing up all things in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is summing up all things in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll flesh this out in just a minute. But this letter makes a rather audacious claim, especially to a post-modern, post-truth world. This letter says that the backstory that informs every life, every country, every war, every future, eternity, every religion is in fact tied to the person of Jesus. That's the backstory. That's the meta narrative. That's where all time and eternity is headed. So if this claim is true, propositionally, if this claim is true, every life lived with Jesus Christ as the reference point, as the guiding star, as the motivating force is vitally part of the only story that will ultimately matter. That's a big claim. Every life lived in rejection of God, summing up all things in Jesus, is destined not only to futility now, but to eternal sorrow and loss as well. That's the claim. So today's introduction, and then we'll do 11 messages, Lord willing, through May. Uh, Let's see how technically challenged I am. Can you guys see this right here? Ephesus right here? So if I've got your attention, I hope I do, stick with me while we take some background information, okay? Just so you're aware of what's going on, where this letter came from and what's going on. So if you look in your Bibles and your study sheet should have the page number for where Ephesians starts, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul the Apostle, that, that Jew that was converted on the road to Damascus and God picked him up and said, you're mine and this is the role I have for you in this life. 
You're my key spokesman to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world. Of course, Paul wrote most of the epistles in the New Testament. So Paul, the apostles, writing to the saints, the holy ones, the Christian believers who are in Ephesus. This letter's a little unusual uh, for a couple of reasons. It's clear when Paul writes it that he doesn't know everyone he's writing to, and they don't know him either. So some people say, we don't think Paul wrote it, or we don't think he wrote it to the Ephesians, because this doesn't make sense otherwise. And what we have to say, well, not necessarily so. So Ephesus, as you can see now, it's actually on the interior today. That's the, the coast of western Turkey today. That used to be a port. It's not anymore. It's inland. The whole river delta silted up, and that their area is inland today. But that was the capital of the Roman uh, area of Asia. It had over a quarter million people living there. It was the center of a lot of religious uh, worship. So it was a big place. And so Paul could have been writing knowing there's people in a quarter million city and Christians that I've never met. And there was lots of surrounding areas around Ephesus as well. It's also likely that this was a circular letter. Some of the letters in the New Testament were meant to be read by more than one church, and so they would be carried from one church to another. It's likely that was the case with Ephesus as well. Ephesus was an important city. We've talked about this not long ago, but when Paul wrote 1 Timothy, his first letter to his protege Timothy, Timothy was living and serving at this same church. And decades after this, in Revelation 2 and 3, Ephesus is the first church Jesus addresses. It, was, it filled an important place in the New Testament times. It was probably carried by Tychicus, guy with the funny names mentioned five times in the New Testament, always with Paul. So why did Paul write this thing? What's the setting for this? Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me go back. Uh, Paul wrote this from prison, probably around 62 A.D. from Rome. And you'll see in chapter 3, verse 1, 4, verse 1, and 620, he keeps saying, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I'm an ambassador in chains. I'm writing from prison. And this is one of the prison epistles Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon being the other. If you've read uh, Philipp, or excuse me, if you've read Colossians and Ephesians before, you know they have a lot of similar language. In fact, they have some phrasing that's absolutely identical. We call these sister epistles. They're a little bit like Jude and Second Peter. It's clear that in this case that the same author wrote them, and they're written to churches that were actually pretty close to each other. If you can see. Let's see, right here. Here's Ephesus right here. And Colossae is right up the Lycus Valley right here. So these letters could have been written in, or could have been read in both churches. Uh, there's no reason. Paul doesn't give a reason for writing this letter. You know, if you read other letters like Corinthians, he's answering questions. Or Romans, he's doing the same thing. He writes to the Galatians because he's correcting some false doctrine they've got. He doesn't tell us. What, why did Paul choose to write this letter this time to this group? doesn't say. Ephesians is considered uh, sort of the high-water mark of the epistles in the New Testament. You know, you might have a favorite prophet, prophetic book in the Old Testament. Isaiah is often called the prince of the prophets just because of the lofty things he sees and the way he refers to what God is up to. Well, Ephesians is kind of that in the New Testament, sort of seen as the high watermark of theology. 
And then the layout is really simple. So the first three chapters, they're all theology. Paul's telling us what the big picture is, what the meta narrative is. And the second three chapters, four through six, are the application of those truths. So, here's the grand claim. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, I'm pulling this out. This is the longest sentence in the Bible. I'm just pulling out the, the two key verses to tell us what, what's Paul going to tell us on the meta narrative, on the big picture of life, on what's the reality behind every reality. This is what Paul says. He says, God is making known to us the mystery of His will. In this letter, God is making known to us the mystery of His will. He's pulling the veil back to show us what His will is, what's going on. According to His purpose, God's will, God's purpose, which He set forth in Christ. God's will and God's purpose is set forth in Christ. And it's this, verse 10, it's a plan for the fullness of time. When time's filled up, where does this all end? What's the end to which everything is moving? And he says, to unite all things in Him. Him is Christ. God's mystery, His will, His purpose in Christ is to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Guys, that's the, big, that's the story that your life and my life are bound up in. This is the meta-narrative. If you're reading from the Holman Bible, that part in verse 10, to unite all things in Him, is translated to bring everything together in the Messiah. New American Standard says, the summing up of all things in Christ. New King James reads, gather together in one all things in Christ. And the Net Bible, which is not normally my favorite, says it really well. God's mystery, His will, His purpose in Christ is to head up all things in Christ. To head up all things in Christ. We could paraphrase to say God's grand plan is to bring all things under the headship of Christ. They're all trying to translate, frankly, a rather long, difficult compound Greek word, which I will not try to pronounce, but I will tell you this. In the middle of the compound word is the word kephale, which is head. And that's why when the Net Bible says to head up all things in Christ, they're literally translating part of that term. That's why the title of the series is Christ Overall. Christ being head over all things is the grand plan for the universe. That's where we're heading. Christ will be over all things. So what's the mystery of God's will? What's God's plan for the fullness of time? What's the reality you and I need to be tied into? To what end are heaven and earth moving? All things in Christ. God's reconciling all things to Himself in Christ. And the future of all things in heaven and on earth is tied up with their relationship to Christ now. That informs everything, every life on earth. Peter O'Brien's written one of the key commentaries on this book. He says the theme is cosmic reconciliation and unity in Christ. Cosmic reconciliation and unity in Christ. So Ephesians is lifting the veil on the grand design, on the mystery of the universe. We're getting a backstage pass. We're getting a director's view of the ultimate reality that informs all of our living. God is pulling the veil, pulling the curtain back, and He says, this is where I'm headed. 
my son will head up all things in the created order. In this letter, Paul uses the term mystery seven times. So the mystery of God's will. Typically, if we listen or watch a mystery today, a mystery is a series of clues that the clever among us can figure out the end. You know, it's a murder mystery. We get the clues. We figure it out. That's not the mystery in this sense. A mystery in the Bible is if God doesn't tell you, you don't know. Mystery is God revealing himself or his will to us. So Paul uses this term, this key term, seven times in this letter. And that's important, isn't it? Seven is the is a number associated with perfection or fulfillment. So Paul is indicating through the use of this term and by the things he says that God is pulling back and he's showing us the key things we need to know to make sense out of this life. And it's all tied up in the person and the work of Christ. And when Paul uses mystery, he's primarily talking about two things. The first is the mystery that Jesus is summing up all things in himself. That's the first. The second, which we'll get into in some weeks ahead, is something that the Jews had a really hard time with in the early uh, history of the church. The second mystery is that Gentiles, without becoming Jews, that Gentiles are now with Jews in one new entity that has been formed by Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection called the church. That was a new thing, and they didn't know about that. And even though there are hints of some of these things in the Old Testament, God had never spelled these things out. But He does here in Ephesians as He does in other places in the New Testament. So, our lives are heading towards a consummation in which the final determination of all things is tied to the person of Christ. This is the grand theme not only of this letter, but actually of all the Bible. A lot of times if you talk to theologians and commentators and ask, what's the theme of the Bible? It's a big question for a big book, right? Ultimate reality. They'll sometimes say, the kingdom of God, that's the theme. And, and I don't quibble with that on one hand, but on the other, it's so generic that it, it, it's not very helpful because it's not specific. But if you say that the sum of all things, the end of it all is not just the kingdom, but it's that Christ is ruling the kingdom, that Christ is over all. That God is summing up all things in Christ. Jesus is the King over all things. He's the sum of all things. He's the reconciler of all things. Then we're closer to the theme that Paul's bringing up here and the key theme that runs throughout the Bible. By the way, if you look in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 through 28, you'll see that same theme. It's kind of a prophetic scripture that talks primarily about resurrection, but Paul tells us there the same thing. Where is everything going? How does this whole thing end? He says exactly the same thing there in 1 Corinthians 15. So, God wants us to have no mistake that Jesus is the hero of God's divine drama. And to that, this is on your study sheet, the the title for Jesus Christ occurs 32 times in this letter. That's a lot. Of those 32, 13 times it's the phrase in Christ. We'll talk more about that later. Lord Jesus Christ is six more times. Jesus Christ is seven more times. And Jesus is seven more times. The theme is Jesus. Christ over all is the theme of the book. And it's the theme of the Bible. And it's the revelation of God to us. If you want to know about ultimate reality, you have to be connected to the person of Jesus Christ. 
Now, imagine you're on a stage. So you go behind the curtain or in front of the curtain. Imagine you're on a stage with a lot of other actors and actresses. And let's just say for the most part that people are milling about. And there's a few people there that appear to have purpose and they appear to have important dialogue. They appear to know what's going on, but you don't. And most of the other people around you don't either. And so there's a sense of I'm lacking purpose. I don't know who I am. What's my role? What am I supposed to say? What provides meaning? What's context for me? Here I am up on the stage and I don't know why I'm here or what I'm supposed to be doing. But then suppose someone gave you the script. And then you sit down with the other actors or actresses and you read and you know the storyline, you know the beginning, the middle, and the end. Your parts are highlighted. You understand who your character is and what your role is and what part you play in that drama. That would make all the difference in the world, wouldn't it? And this is the thing. Most of us are living life without the script. We lack purpose. We lack meaning. We we are confused in life. And it's because either... We don't know the script, the big storyline. Or for some of us, we know the big storyline, but we don't know our role or our part in the drama that is life. And God in Ephesians, He means us to know both. He means to know what's the overarching storyline that all of our lives fall in, and also what's the purpose and role, what's the character each one of us is called to play. We'll get into that in chapter 4. Unless and until we see our life as being lived under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, Christ over all, we will lack purpose adequate for life. This doesn't mean that we'll lack purpose. Uh, uh, Fun, hedonism, you know, all the ways lives can be distracted and just poured out and wasted doesn't mean people lack purpose. Purpose adequate for life, for time and eternity. We will be absent motivation adequate to negotiate the trials of life successfully. Success in the way God means us to both here and for eternity's sake. We will exist, but we won't really live. That would be like Neo in his dream world. I'm alive, but it doesn't feel real. I'm present, but I know something is hollow and missing. We will be born, live, and die, never really knowing why we were here or to what glorious ends we might have aspired so it's knowing god's purpose in christ then having a sense of god's calling on our own life is what infuses life with meaning and purpose let me give you two and stick with me just so you got the big picture let me give you a sense of the scope in which paul is defining through this book through this letter what it looks like for jesus to be christ overall this is just a quick run through the whole book okay christ over the redeemed through salvation in his electing love That's the first half of chapters 1 and 2. God's will and Paul's prayer for us. By the way, there's two key prayers. Two of the best prayers in all the Bible are in this letter. Chapters 1 and chapters 3. God's will and Paul's prayer for us to know the riches of Jesus' inheritance in His headship over the church. Chapter 1. We'll look at that in a few weeks. Christ over Jews and Gentiles in this one new entity, the church. Christ as Lord or as head over the church. That's chapter, parts of chapters 2 and 3. God's will, second prayer, and Paul's prayer is that we comprehend the height, breadth, and depth of God's love for us as Christ is our head. Christ over the church, that's the first half of chapter 4. Christ over our living. 
all the areas of our living is chapters 4 into chapter 5. Christ over our families and relationships, chapter 5 right into chapter 6. And summing it all up, Christ over the spiritual powers closes out the epistle chapter 6. Christ over every aspect of life. That's where He's taking us. He's showing us Christ's Lordship over every sphere of life. There's a well-known part of Shakespeare, as you like, at Act 2, Scene 7, which Jock says this, All the world's a stage. And all men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man or woman in their time plays many parts. That life as a drama, life as a play in which we come and we go, and we go through these stages of life. And in Shakespeare, if you live long enough, you go through seven from birth ultimately to the grave. But as you're thinking about this, what stage of life are you in now? What stage of life are you in now? What role... Are you called to play today in life? Under Christ's headship, what does it mean for us to be husbands and wives? Of course, this all gets down to to boots on the ground, doesn't it? The theology is great, right? And And then the application becomes important, right? What does it look like? For us to to play the roles God has given us to play as husbands and wives. And guys, we need this, don't we? I know a lot of you, and I know you need it. My wife knows me, and she knows I need it. What does it look like to successfully play our role as husbands and wives, as parents, as children, children still living at home? Ephesians applies to children. In fact, Ephesians specifically addresses children. We'll get to that later. What does it look like to fill out our role as friends, as students, as employees or employers? What roles does Jesus mean us to act out in our gifts and calling? By the way, you know, this is something that comes up fairly routinely. We'll get into this in chapter 4. If you could look at the church and just see who is actually fulfilling the gifts and calling God has on their life, I'd say it's, it's a very small percent. Even though every person, every Christian in the body of Christ is meant to play a vital part in the role of the body. And by the way, at Lion and Lamb, the elders and the deacons or the worship, we, we don't think we're all that. We think you're all that. And I've told people before, if leaders don't successfully help others fulfill their gifts and callings, they're failures as leaders. So are we fulfilling? Do we know that God has a call on our lives? No matter what our role is, what our sphere is, God has a call on us. He's given us gifts that we'll answer for. Are we using those? Are we filling up the measure Christ has allotted us in His body? In life's grand drama overseen by God, have we read the script? Guys, do you know this is another way of saying, have you read your Bible? Do you know that? Have you read the script? Was this subtle enough for you? Are you awake and did you catch that? Have we read the script, right? Let me encourage you to to read Ephesians a few times through the next several months. It's six chapters. You can read this in 10 or 15 minutes. And if you do, when we talk through these sessions, you'll be so much better informed. You'll know things I won't say. You'll know more than I know. That'll be great. I'll ask you questions about Ephesians. Read it through these next several months. Just read it through. Just read it through once. Don't worry about taking notes if you don't want to. Just read it through. But read the script. And think of this. 
again, the surveys just, uh, you got to be so careful in what you take away from them, right? If you really ask people, not what do you claim, but what do you do? Most evangelicals live like pagans. Most evangelicals live like people that have no relationship with Christ. It's not just what we claim, that association. It's how do we live? How do we live? Have we read the script? Do we know the director? Do we know the director? Do we have a personal relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus? Do we know the director? Or do we simply know someone who knows the director? You've got to know the director. And he's made that easy, right? We simply come to God through faith in Jesus. We say we're sinners and we've done wrong. And we failed to do right. And we accept Jesus' payment on the cross for our sins. And we're in. And God gives us his name. He gives us power and authority to become his children. And he gives us a part in this great eternal drama for which you will be eternally thankful if you'll jump in. And are we living with purpose and meaning because we've embraced our role in God's grand design? Now listen, on any given day, most of us would say, I'm not feeling it. To which I would say, there are no small parts, only small actors. Right? Uh, this is another movie. Sorry, just coming to mind. You know the Caribbean pirate movies. I forget their names. Johnny Depp was this actor, right? He had a bit part in the first movie. You know what happened? They, they ran the whole movies around him. He had a small role, and once they saw him in this role, they just said, man, we've got to change everything we're doing. We've got to make this movie about Johnny Depp's character, whatever his name was. Because there were no small parts, just small actors. Are we living like God's wise enough in His sovereignty to have actually put us in a place that makes a difference in what He's doing? As an employer, as an employee, as a student, as a child, as a mom at home changing diapers, as a dad going to work, whatever it is, do we live like the role God has given us in this overarching drama like it matters? Because it does. It matters to God. Faithfulness always matters to God. If you can't be faithful to anybody else, be faithful to God. It matters. You'll be glad you did. Are we living with the knowledge of God's great mystery to sum up all things in Christ? This means do we acknowledge Christ over all of our life? Have we embraced the mystery of the ages and are we living intelligently? Winding down, as we've said, for some of us, getting into the meta narrative, the only storyline that makes any difference at the end of it all, means coming to faith in Christ. It means simply acknowledging all of life's about Christ and I want in. That's the important thing. For others of us, friends, it's this. It's repenting of lives already connected to Christ through faith, but in which Jesus is not Christ overall. That's most of us, isn't it? That's most of us. As we think about 2017, I didn't want to do a typical first Sunday of the year thing, you know, resolutions and all that stuff, so I'm not. But, Thinking of Ephesians and thinking about the year ahead, what might God be tapping us on the shoulder saying, you need to get rid of some things. You need to repent. You got some areas in your life in which Christ is not present at all, which we just live like we don't know him. Thank you very much. I'll come back and I'll chat with you later. 
What might God be talking to us about going into this year? What might making Christ over all of our life look like for us? That's probably most of us. For still others of us, it simply means continuing in a long obedience, knowing the place and purpose God has for us. Some of us might say, you know, I'm prayed up, I'm confessed up, I'm doing the things I know to do. And then you say, well, great, keep doing it. That's God's call on your life. Keep doing it. For all of us, understanding God's grand plan for the heavens and the earth and our place in it gives life purpose and meaning. It really does. It informs your life and mind. You have purpose and meaning if you're in your role, this grand drama, if you understand what your part is. You have purpose and meaning. So we want to make it our aim this year to live with an awareness of God's plan and our place in it. And last, and this is important, no one can play the part, the role God's given you. Nobody else can fill the role God's given you. There's a void where your part is meant to be if you're not filling it up. So all of us, if you know Christ, you have purpose, you have a role, you have gifts, you have a calling, and you're in a certain place and a time with certain sets of relationships. No one else can fill that role if you let it go. So that's where we're going, okay? Father, thanks that you have in loving kindness and faithfulness told us the truth. Thanks that there is purpose and plan in a universe that all, often appears all too chaotic. Father, there are wars and rumors of wars. There are natural disasters. Father, there is hatred and bloodshed. There are deep divides. In this country and around the world, in your church, people live as if they don't know you at all. Sometimes we do too. We humbly confess our sins. We acknowledge that Jesus is our Savior and our King. We ask you that in our lives this year, Christ might be seen as overall more than he has been to this date. Would you glorify yourself through lifting up Christ in our midst? In his name, amen.